ahead and jump into our lesson this evening. We've been looking for the last several Wednesdays on this thought of developing your personal Bible study. You know, instead of studying a specific subject in the Bible or going through a specific thing, we are looking at how we as Christians can develop our Bible study, how we can get more out of the Bible on our own, how we can dig in and find what God has for us, understand passages of Scripture. Boy, I'm telling you what, there are many, many, many passages of Scripture uh, that people look at and they have no idea what it means. Or they'll look at it and they'll say, I've heard preachers preach on this, but I can't explain it, and so forth and so on. And many times uh, folks have difficulty understanding the Scripture. And what happens is, uh, at no, of no fault of their own, people pick a few select passages of Scripture that they like, and that seems to be the depth and the end of their Bible study. They may read more, but that's kind of the end of their study. And so uh, looking at our Wednesday nights, I thought, you know, it'd be good if we just took some time and looked into how can we dig into the Word of God. And I've enjoyed uh, what we have looked at so far the last few Wednesday nights. We did some word studies and showed how uh, different words and their meanings and traced them back to the original languages and shown how it just shed so much light onto passages of Scripture that maybe isn't obvious when you read it at first glance. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at this thought of figures of speech, figures of speech. The verse that we have used uh, as our as our um, text verse for this study is 2 Timothy 2.15. This verse is written to all Christians, and it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, there's a movement in our day to make the Bible simple. Now, I am not against in any way making the Bible understandable. That's my job, is to make the Bible understandable, to explain the Word of God to you. But there's a different movement, and this different movement is to bring the Bible down, to make it simple, to make it easy to understand. And you kind of, when you hear people say this, it sounds good. But anytime you do that, you lose meaning. Uh, whenever uh, someone goes to get their certificate to be an electrician, they do not give him a simplified book. They tell him, you're going to have to study and learn to understand these codes and understand these circuits and this voltage. You, you have to under. We can't simplify it because it's a complex issue. And whenever people begin watering down the Word of God in an effort to make it simple, you lose so much of what is in here. Any person who is diligent, a diligent student of the Word of God, can comprehend and understand the Word of God. But the trouble is, a lot of times we want everything easy. We want it simple. We don't want to invest time. Therefore, we want somebody to break it down for us and make it really simple for us so we don't have to invest the time. But 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us that every Christian should study. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we're going to be looking at figures of speech. We're going to be recognizing and understanding the figurative statements in the Bible and the purpose that they serve, why 
they are there. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, for each person that is here this evening. I pray, dear Lord, that you will bless each of them. I pray, dear Lord, that you will bless their lives. I pray you bless their, their families, bless their homes, bless their jobs. Father, I pray you bless their health. And Father, I pray that you will pour out a blessing on those, oh Lord, who faithfully serve you. Lord, those who are here tonight, oh Lord, gives evidence that they are people who want to know more about your word. They are people who want to dig in. They want to go deeper. And Father, I thank you for each one of them. Lord, as I attempt to explain uh, your word and the, these principles of studying your word, Father, I pray that you will help me. Uh, Lord, help me to be able to be clear and to be understandable. I pray that the things that I say, uh, Lord, will be able that they can apply them, Father. Uh, Lord, that they might dig into your word and better understand your word, Father, I pray. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this opportunity, the freedom that we have to meet together to study your word. Lord, so often we take it for granted. But Father, I thank you for giving it to us. Bless us now this evening, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now as we get into tonight's lesson, it may seem like more of a language lesson than a Bible study lesson because we're going to be looking at a lot of things concerning language and how language works. And you know... Sometimes we make light of our lack of understanding of our own language. You know, someone may say something to us about another language or learning another language, and we'll make a comment, something like, well, I don't even understand English. How can, I expect, how can you expect me to learn that language? You know, I've, I don't even understand how, how my own language works. And sometimes we'll make light of not understanding our language, but in truth, having a grasp upon the mechanics of our language goes a long way in understanding the Word of God. I myself, as a, as a student, when I was in school, uh, high school, elementary school, grade school, uh, I felt that understanding my language was a waste of time. I mean, I knew how to talk, right? Why did I need to understand all this stuff? This is a waste of time. But after I became a student of the Word of God, I have begun to understand that God has communicated to me in my language. Now, if I want to understand what God is saying to me, I need to understand my language so I can understand what God is saying to me. So tonight, as we look at this, it may seem like more of a language lesson, but I believe that it is very important that we understand our, our mechanics of communication so that we can comprehend the Scripture. Now, I'll be the first to say that I'm definitely not a language teacher, and there's a tremendous amount about the English language that I still have yet to learn, a lot that I don't know, but with the help of books written by Bible language scholars, I can find and explain truths that help me understand the Word of God, and I can share those with you and help you understand the Scripture. So this evening we're going to be looking at this thing of figures of speech. Now a basic explanation of a figure of speech, what a figure of speech is, is a word or a sentence that is used in a form different from its original meaning or its normal use. So it's a word or a sentence that I use uh, uh, in explaining something, but I use that word differently than it would be originally defined or normally used. Now there's many, many variations of figures of speech which we use daily. Uh, this book that I have right here, Figures of Speech Used in the Bible by E.W. Bullinger. Uh, Dr. Bullinger has found over 200 figures of speech that are used in the Word of God and variations of those. So a tremendous amount of variations of figures of speech. But figures of speech, although there's a lot of them, can be grouped into three main categories. There are figures of uh, speech that 
involve omission, leaving something out. Uh, There are figures of speech uh, uh, that involve addition, including something in the illustration, and there are figures of speech that involve change, in other words, using the word differently than it would normally be used. Um, Whenever we think of figures of speech, we may question... um, why do we have figures of speech? Why do we use figures of speech? And you and I, all of us, use figures of speech every day, multiple times a day, and we don't even think about the fact that we're using figures of speech. It is a natural thing that we use in our conversation. But we may ask as we're looking at this, why do we have figures of speech? Why do we use them in our conversation? And then furthermore, if we're using words that in a way that they are not originally meant, why do we have figures of speech in Scripture? Why why would they be there if they use a word differently? And so two reasons why we employ figures of speech in our communication. I believe this is your first uh, blanks there on your worksheet. Figures of speech, one of the reasons that we employ them in our communication is because figures of speech express an idea more forcefully. They express an idea more forcefully. In other words, it puts more power in what I am trying to say. It brings attention to the idea. It causes us to focus on what is being said. It it grabs our attention. It's not the normal use. Therefore, it grabs our attention and focuses us on the idea. Another thing that we can see why we use figures of speeches is because, and this is three answers, they are always... Interesting. They're usually colorful and they're generally arresting. You know, whenever you talk to people or address a group of people, one thing you'll notice right off is that it's difficult to keep people's attention. Now, none of y'all, y'all are all great and you always pay attention. Your mind never drifts. But you know, sometimes when you're addressing a group of people and you're standing behind the pulpit and you're you're pouring your heart out and you look at the people, it's pretty obvious that they're not with you. You're done. You've already lost them. They're thinking about something else. Their mind is drifting. It's a human nature for our minds to drift like that. But a figure of speech enables the speaker, the teacher, the writer to draw the audience back in to the subject. It gets their attention. And so we use figures of speech uh, to draw attention to the idea, subject, or message being presented. For example, how many of you have ever flew on an airplane? I flew airplanes. Most folks here, some folks flew on an airplane. You get on an airplane. Over here, you flew on an airplane. You get on an airplane. And I remember the first time I got on an airplane, I was going to Papua New Guinea. That's the first time I rode. Had never flown, and when I got back, I'd been flying for 40-some hours. That was, yeah, way to break you in. But uh, anyway, I got on a plane, headed to Papua New Guinea, and I was excited. I wouldn't say that I was nervous. I was excited. This is going to be cool. going to see what this is all about. But you know, as it goes down the runway, as it starts lifting up, uh, you got all kind of questions in your mind about what's going on, what's happening, what's that noise. I'm sure the pilot's got this, looking out the window, watching the runway. You know, you're kind of engaged in the plane and in the flight and all that's going on. Well, the plane got up in the air. It was a large plane. It got up in the air. We got several thousand feet in the air, and they found a good, comfortable place to ride, and we just began to ride. You look out the window, and there's nothing out there to see, and just clouds, and you're just riding, and everybody starts going to sleep, and it gets quiet, and I pulled out a book, and I start reading my book, and I forgot about the fact that I was flying. I quit paying attention to everything that was going on in the plane. 
and I'm just cruising along until we hit an air pocket, and that plane goes, whoop, and all of a sudden, I am back. I am well aware that we are in an airplane. What just happened? Why did the plane drop? Looking out the window, I am back in tune. That's what a figure of speech does in teaching, preaching, writing. Whenever the person is just going steady, we tend to stop paying attention. But a figure of speech is like that air pocket, and it brings your attention back. Wow, what was that? And brings your attention back to the subject at hand. The same thing is true uh, when reading the Bible. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe I'm the only one that can do this, but I can read the Bible and think about something completely different. Have you ever done that? I mean, I'm sitting here reading. And I'm, I mean, I'm reading every word, and I'm just reading my Bible, reading my Bible, and then I realized that I was not paying any attention to what I was reading. I was thinking about something completely different. But there have been times when I was doing that, mindlessly reading, and I read through something, I'm like, whoa, what did that say? Huh? And I go back and I read it again, and many times it's a figure of speech that it didn't flow normally Therefore, it brought my attention back to the subject. So why do we have figures of speech? Because it brings us back to the subject. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Brother uh, E.W. Bollinger has identified over 200 figures of speech, and in identifying these, he cited over 8,000 passages of Scripture where figures of speech are used in the Word of God. Now, that's an exhaustive study. There's no way that we can cover all of that. Well, I guess we could, but it would take us a long time to cover all of those different types of figure of speech and all the scriptures that they're applied to. Uh, so uh, we're not going to do that, but I believe that this is a study that is worth a little bit of our time. And so I have another book here. This is uh, John Phillips. This is Bible Explorer's Guide. Uh, this is a great book for just uh, beginning teaching how to study the Word of God. And uh, in this, uh, John Phillips identifies 15 figures of speech that are commonly seen in Scripture. Things that you're probably going to encounter and recognize 15 different figures of speech. And so it's going to be my goal, Lord willing, to look at these 15 different figures of speech uh, over the next few weeks. Now you see there on your worksheet all 15 blanks. Uh, we will not be covering all 15 of them tonight. We'll be looking at this over the next uh, few weeks. We'll be looking at these different figures of speech and how they work in Scripture. And I, honestly, I don't know how many lessons uh, uh, we will have on this subject. I know that tonight I had a goal, and we didn't even get close to my goal for tonight. So I'm not sure how many weeks we'll be on this subject of looking at figures of speech. Uh, we'll definitely try not to bore you with it. Uh, but boy, I'll tell you what, there's some very interesting things to see as we look at this. So tonight we're going to begin with the most common uh, figurative language. And then as we progress through the study, we'll be again looking at figures of speech that maybe we're not familiar with or maybe haven't heard of. So the first one that we're going to consider this evening is the simile. The simile. This is the most common figure of speech both in our conversation and in the passages of pages of Scripture. Uh, whenever you get home from work and you've been working hard all day and you've been out in the heat and you come in and you look at your wife and you say, what's for dinner? I'm as hungry as a bear. That's the simile right there. I'm hungry as a bear. You're not a bear, but you feel like your hunger could match that of a bear. We use this figure of speech all the time in our conversation and it is 
all throughout the pages of Scripture. Uh, it's the most easily recognized figure of speech. It's the most clearly understood uh, figures of speech. As we go on and we look at other figures of speech, you'll find that some figures of speech uh, suggest or point to an intended understanding, uh, but a simile uh, always clearly states the comparison. What is being compared in an easily understood way? So there's two examples, assemblies, uh, found in Scripture, and you'll see on your worksheet I gave one or two examples in Scripture. Of each of these, there's many examples. Uh, I just chose some to look at in this study. So looking in Scripture at similes, we can look at Psalm 1 and verse number 3. Psalm 1 and verse number 3. And if you look there, very familiar verse. It says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. This simile is clearly seen in this familiar passage of Scripture. The psalmist is using a figure of speech to convey the benefit that comes from spending time in the Word of God. He said you meditate on the Word of God, you spend time in the Word of God, you let the Word of God saturate your mind, and here's the benefit, you will be like a tree. You will be someone who is not an actual tree, but your position in life, your strength, your security, your nourishment, your benefit, fit to others will be the same as a large oak with its boughs spreading out, planted by the river. It's strong. It can help others. Uh, it is getting all the nourishment it needs. You spend time in the Word of God and you will be just like that tree planted by the rivers of water. The psalmist goes on and we can see much more in this passage. He says that he'll be like a tree planted. We see there intentional. You know what? The apple tree in your front yard gets a lot more attention than the wild tree growing out in the forest. Uh, you see here, this tree uh, is one that is planted. You spend time in the Word of God. You will not only benefit from the Word of God, but you will benefit from the gardener. And we can go on and on and on, and we see how that this simile brings to life what happens in the, in the heart of the person that spends time in the Word of God. And you can continue through Psalm 1. There's uh, several other uh, similes in Psalm 1. A second example that we want to look at, though, is in 1 Peter chapter number 2 and in verse number 25. In 1 Peter 2 and verse number 25, we see another example of a simile. And Peter here says, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. This verse, through the use of a simile, a figure of speech, drives home the truth of our condition before salvation and the redemption that is found in the Savior. Before salvation, you were as a sheep going astray, helpless, uh, with no protection, uh, uh, open to the attack of the enemy. Uh, uh, you were vulnerable. You had no one protecting you. You were as a sheep going astray, but you have been returned to the shepherd. This verse, by use of a figure of speech, paints a beautiful picture of our condition before salvation and the redemption that is offered by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why I say it's going to be hard to get through this? Because every one of these examples are sermons in their self. We could preach all night on each one of these examples. But we see here that the simile, the figure of speech, strengthens the truth and enables our minds to grasp the depth of both passages. Uh, similes can be found throughout the Scripture and can be always be identified with words uh, such as like, as, even, 
or combinations of these words will always identify a simile. It is always clear the subject and the comparison is always clear in a simile. A second figure of speech that is very common that we'll find throughout the Word of God and that we often use in our conversation is that of a metaphor. Now, actually, the word metaphor is misused in our daily conversation very much. Anytime something is spoken of in an illustrative way, uh, we will say that it was spoken of metaphorically, and that is actually incorrect. That is not actually fitting with the true meaning of the word metaphor, but everybody uses it anyway. Uh, but a metaphor, while a simile states that one thing is like another, the metaphor declares that one thing is the other. So uh, we see here in the simile that it is said uh, there uh, that he shall be like a tree. So it says that it would be like something else. The metaphor says that it will be, it is uh, the other thing. In 1 Peter 1 and verse number 24, the simile states that all flesh is as grass. But in Isaiah 40, verse number 6, which we'll look at a little more here in a minute, we find a metaphor that declares that all flesh is grass. We see here that this is a stronger statement. This is the difference in the two. One says it's like something. The other says that it is something. Um, we see that the metaphor is not as true to fact as a simile. A simile is very factual. Uh, I am as hungry as a bear. I'm not a bear, but I feel like my hunger could match a bear. This is factual. Metaphor is not as worried about fact, but a metaphor is much truer to feeling. I don't feel like grass. I think I am grass. Uh, much truer to feeling. The simile says we are all like sheep. The metaphor says we are the sheep. Uh, similes give a resemblance. Metaphors give a representation. Now just hang with me. Lots. Of, this helps you understand your Bible, so just hang with me, all right? There's numerous examples of metaphors found in the Scripture, and the two examples we have listed tonight are Isaiah 40 and verse number 6, which we referenced just a moment ago. In, verse, in Isaiah 40 and verse number 6, the Bible says, All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. So we see both, uh, both instances here in this passage, but the first phrase, all flesh is is grass. This metaphor is clearly seen. All flesh is grass. Now, because we know that flesh and grass are not literally the same thing, although this states that all flesh is grass, we immediately recognize that this is a metaphor. We immediately say, okay, so this is a metaphor because I know that my flesh is not the same thing as grass, literally. So this is something that else is being said here. We understand that this is not stating a literal truth, but that a representation is being made here that drives home the truth of my human frailty. My flesh is grass. Just as grass is frail, it's affected by the wind, it's affected by the sun, it's affected by traffic, it's affected by... It's very frail in the same way I'm frail. This is a representation of my human frailty. If we read on in verse 7 and 8 of Isaiah 40, we realize that this frailty is being given in contrast to the strength of the Word of God. In verse number 7, he says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A metaphor is being made here that illustrates that I 
in comparison to the Word of God am nothing. It teaches me that man will come and man will go. Just as grass springs up and grass dies, man will come, man will have his opinions, man will return to the dust where he came from, but through it all, the Word of God will never change. And the metaphor drives home that truth that man will never, ever hurt, harm, or destroy the Word of God it drives the point home that we are no match for the Word of God. Because metaphors state the representation, factually, many times metaphors in the Word of God have been misunderstood by well-meaning men and false doctrines have developed from the Word of God because people took a metaphor and interpreted it literally. There are several examples. The one that I'll share with you tonight is the Catholic teaching of transubstantiation. That is the teaching that the bread and the wine that we use in communion, that when we take the bread and the wine, the bread actually turns into the body of Christ. The wine actually turns into the blood of Christ. That's the doctrine of transubstantiation. That is a doctrine that is formed by men misinterpreting a metaphor. Martin Luther, many of you know of Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer. Martin Luther left the Catholic Church, but even after leaving the Catholic Church, he still held on to this doctrine. He still believed this doctrine. And in debating with one of his uh, friends, one of his fellow preachers, they were debating this. Uh, of course, Martin Luther was saying that this was so, and the, his friend was saying that it couldn't be so. They were, uh, they were debating it back and forth, and uh, Martin Luther's like, but in the Scripture, in the Gospels, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is my body. Therefore, it has to turn into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther was convinced. And his friend looked at him and he said, well, Dr. Luther, how do you, what do you do with John 10 and verse number 9 where Jesus said, I am the door? How do you interpret that? And Mr. Luther began to realize that this was a metaphor. This was Jesus making an application, a representation, that just because he said, I am, or this is my body, did not mean that it actually became his body. So uh, both, both were metaphors, and it became obvious that by comparing Scripture with Scripture, Metaphors are easily understood. But whenever we take one scripture by itself and pull it out to use it by itself, many times we can create false doctrine. So we're almost out of time. I'll try to hit this third one really quickly, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up for tonight. A third figure of speech that we want to consider this evening is the allegory. The allegory. Now, I'm going to hit this one quickly right now as we close because an entire lesson could be taught on allegorical interpretation of Scripture and we actually may come back and teach a whole lesson on allegorical interpretation of Scripture at some point. But for tonight, I just want to give a brief understanding of what is meant by an allegory. Like the simile and the metaphor... The allegory draws its strength from comparison. This is where it gets its strength from. Now, a parable is an extended simile. 
So assembly is whenever I clearly make an application to something else uh, in a sentence. A parable is when I make a comparison with something else in an entire story, uh, such as the parable of the sower. This would be an extended simile. This is a parable. In the same way, an allegory is an extended metaphor. So just as a parable is an extended simile, an allegory is an extended metaphor. A metaphor is a representative sentence. An allegory uh, is a representative story. We talked about uh, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress a few lessons back. This is probably the best uh, allegorical piece of literature in, in English literature. It is amazing, and it is an allegory from cover to cover. A tremendous uh, work that John Bunyan did here in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, we see uh, that he took and he gave a fictitious narrative uh, with a deeper meaning than what could be seen on surface. And that is what an allegory is. It is something that seems fictitious. Sometimes it'll be historical, but there'll always be a deeper meaning in the historical. Uh, but in either case, it's always a powerful means of conveying a message, and we do find allegories in a few passages of Scripture. One example of an allegory is in Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12 Verse 43 and 44, this would just be a small one, uh, but it does give you an example of it. Matthew chapter number 12, verse 43 and 44. It says here, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. This is an allegorical story that represents the spiritual danger of self-righteousness as opposed to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Some people try to clean their own act up and they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and many times that person will wind up way worse than they were before because the Holy Spirit never took residence in their heart. And although we do not see that written in this, we know this is an allegory and that is what this passage of Scripture is teaching us. And there's a few other places in Scripture where we can find examples of allegory. But now, let me give a word of caution. And this is why I say we could come back and teach a whole lesson on allegorical interpretation. Caution needs to be used anytime you're interpreting Scripture allegorically. As a matter of fact, unless it is clear that it's allegorical, we should not try to interpret it allegorically. Some of the most far-out doctrines that exist in our day come from allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Someone takes a passage of Scripture and they make it mean something different. Uh, they will take a passage of Scripture and they'll say, well, this could represent this, this could represent this, this could represent this, and they can make it represent whatever they want it to represent, and they come up with doctrines that are terrible doctrines that are not supported in the Word of God at all. The example I gave you here in Matthew chapter number 12 is clearly an allegorical teaching because what I say it represents is clearly taught in many other places in Scripture. So it, we can see Scripture supports this interpretation. But sometimes folks will take passages of Scripture, put their own interpretation to it that's not supported anywhere else in Scripture, and come up with a doctrine that is very damaging. So use caution uh, with allegorical interpretation. If it's not clearly allegorical, uh, we should interpret it literally as we looked at uh, before, unless we run the danger of making nonsense 
out of Scripture. So there you go. Uh, three, uh, the simile, the metaphor, and the allegory. These are very common. Uh, you've most definitely uh, probably heard of these. You use these in your conversation daily. It's something that is readily used. But many times when we read Scripture, we fail to apply this to Scripture and we fail to get a correct understanding of Scripture. And so uh, next week we'll continue uh, looking at these and moving our way through them. Uh, I had hoped to get the first six tonight, and as I was studying, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to do good to get the first three. Um, so anyway, we will continue looking at these, and boy, there's some, some good truths to be learned, and I hope that you're enjoying these studies. All righty, so we'll take...